This is Cashflow Ninja, episode 92, with G. Edward Griffin. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher. Hello everyone, MC Lobster here and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. Thank you so much for spending some time with me today. I have a show today that's more philosophical in nature and in my view extremely important when it comes to empowering yourself and your family and building sustainable legacy wealth. For new listeners, the show is all about empowering people to become self-reliant, independent, and truly free human beings when it comes to creating and building wealth. Philosophy and how we view the world has an enormous role in our lives. In today's episode, we are going to look at the concept of freedom, and we're not going to be regurgitating incoherent slurs of freedom and slogans that we find on bumper stickers and ribbons and flags and that we utter at ball games or national holidays. We are truly going to look at what it means to be a free human being and how a free society functions. And if we discuss the concept of freedom, it usually includes discussing the two dominant philosophies we have in the world today, individualism and collectivism. And we're also going to be discussing rights. Where does our rights come from? Is an individual born with unalienable rights, or is the individual granted rights by the collective or the state? Now, there are many words commonly used today to describe our political attitudes and our philosophy. You know, uh, we hear the terms conservatives, liberals, libertarians, progressives, left-wingers, right-wingers, and now, of course, a new alt-right or the new right, socialists. Communists, Maoists, Trotskyites, fascists, Nazis. And if that's not <laughs> enough for you, we also have the new conservatives and new Nazis and new progressive and so forth. So it basically comes down to, to two dominant fundamental poles and worldviews, individualism and collectivism. Today's episode will definitely challenge your existing belief system and even have you reevaluate your understanding of what it means to be an independent, self-reliant, sovereign, free human being. And the reason why I would say this is I think that you will realize that we are indoctrinated in schools and universities, not educated. Trust me, I have about 20 years of schooling between school, university, and business school, and it took me a while to unclutter my mind with all the bad ideas that was put in there through indoctrination. If you think I'm being a little bit extreme by stating it that way, just think about the amount of people that think that America's form of government is a democracy, and they're trying to spread their democratic system or ideas to the rest of the world. By the way, America's form of government is not a democracy. It's actually a constitutional republic. 
So I think today's episode will also help you to understand what you stand for and what your ideas of freedom, and you might also start to realize what the idea of freedom is of your family, your friends, your network, and the community that you live in. As always, please do your own research, critically think for yourself, and form your own opinion. That's already a great place to start empowering yourself. In the marketplace of ideas, the market will decide which ones are good or bad, and unfortunately, we have not had a free market of ideas to have the bad ones being weeded out by the market forces. We live in a world where the ideas are so bad in our societies that it has to be enforced by force and coercion and violence in the form of laws and law enforcement. The internet has changed the game and democratized information in most of the world, so good and great ideas are not only alive, but really growing in popularity, which is very, very exciting. I'm extremely honored to have back on the show Mr. G. Edward Griffin. Mr. Griffin was a guest on our show on episode 25, where we discussed central banking and took a closer look at the creature that was created on Jekyll Island, the Federal Reserve System. Mr. G. Edward Griffin is a writer, a documentary film producer, and founder of Freedom Force International. Listed in the who's who of America, he is well known because of his talent for researching difficult topics and presenting them in clear terms that we all can understand. He has dealt with such diverse subjects as archaeology and ancient earth history, the Federal Reserve System and international banking, terrorism, internal subversion, the history of taxation, U.S. foreign policy, the science and politics of cancer therapy, the Supreme Court, and the United Nations. His better-known works includes The Creature from Jekyll Island, World Without Cancer, The Discovery of Noah's Ark, Moles in High Places, The Open Gates of Troy, No Place to Hide, The Capitalist Conspiracy, More Deadly Than War, The Grand Design, The Great Prison Break, and The Fearful Master. Please share your feedback and thoughts on today's interview. You can let me know your thoughts on Twitter by tweeting me at MCLobsher or by email at info at CashflowNinja.com. And please remember to join our mailing list by signing up at CashflowNinja.com or texting CashflowNinja, one word, all capitalized, to 44. 222. That's two fours and three twos. As some of my listeners may know, I live in Newtown, Pennsylvania, a town that's about 45 minutes away from Philadelphia, the birthplace of the United States, the home of the cheesesteak, the Rocky Steps, and also the hometown of the beloved founding father, Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin believed an investment in knowledge pays the best interest, and early to bed and early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. The Cashflow Ninja have aligned itself with partners that aims to empower you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Our healthy partner on it provides supplements, nutrient dense, and earth-grown foods and fitness equipment to help you achieve your next level of well-being and total human optimization. Our listeners can get a 10% discount with coupon code GETONIT at CashflowNinjaHealth.com. Our wealthy partner, Fundrise, gives everyone the opportunity to invest directly in high-quality real estate without the middlemen. Fundrise makes the process of investing in the highest quality commercial real estate from around the country simple, efficient, and transparent. You can get started with as little as $1,000, and you do not have to be an accredited investor to participate in some of their offerings. You can check them out at CashflowNinjaWealth.com. 
audiobook.com. And don't forget our wise partner, Audible. You can download any audiobook for free when you try Audible for 30 days. You can download your free audiobook at cashflowninjabook.com. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneur on Fire, and you're listening to the Cashflow Ninja Podcast with your host, MC Lobsher. You must be prepared to ignite. Mr. Griffin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, MC. Glad to be here. Now, Mr. Griffin, it's an honor to have you back on the show. And in our previous conversation, we, we looked at central banking and this massive creature that was born on Jekyll Island. And uh, today, I'm really excited to talk about a very, very important topic with you, individualism versus collectivism. Of course, two very opposite fundamental philosophical poles. Uh, and these are, of course, concepts that have been misrepresented of exactly what it is and what these philosophical views and approaches are to living our lives and organizing our environment and society. And of course, there's a great work done by government schools and educational institutions funded by the government to program and brainwash us from a very young age. I believe it was uh, Vladimir Lenin that said, give me four years to teach the children and the seed I've sown will never be uprooted. So <laughs> it's really not a surprise in my experience that there's uh, su such a misunderstanding of these concepts. Um, now, let's talk start with freedom and what is your idea of, of freedom, and what does freedom mean to you? Well, that's a good place to start uh, because, you know, you mentioned the phrase um, collectivism versus individualism, and I had a little flashback many, many years ago. The first time I came across those words, I thought, How? I don't know what that is, but it sounds too boring that I don't think I care to know. And I was just wondering if anyone listening to this program had a similar reaction. And I just want to say up front, as like a little teaser, that once you get into this topic of collectivism, versus individualism. It is one of the most exciting and stimulating concepts that can go through your mind because it touches on literally everything, everything that's important to us in our lives. It, it makes a difference uh, between whether we will be encouraged or even allowed to do the things that we cherish or whether we will be totally regulated in everything we do and everything we even think by some higher authority. So it's at, at that level, and if that doesn't excite you, especially in today's world where our, our freedom to choose what we do and even what we think is being constantly shrunk, if that doesn't excite you, I, I don't know what would. So anyway, I'm delighted to speak on that topic, but yeah, I think you're um, – you're wanting to start on the concept of freedom is a good place to start because at least that word is familiar to us. So, sure, everybody wants freedom, don't they? They the uh, they speak, uh, you know, give us freedom and freedom to do this and freedom to do that, and even despots uh, talk about uh, freedom. I think that some of the most uh, tyrannical moves that have ever been made in history, in modern history anyway, have been, named, have been done in the name of bring, bringing freedom to people. We're sending our military, for example, around the world. Why? And we, we don't say we're there to invade those countries and to bring about regime change. We're the, we say we're there so that the people can be free there. And, of course, that never happens. <laughs> after the invasion and after the war, there's a, a new dictator. 
data that goes into place and the people were even less free than before we went there to bring freedom to them. You know, we're supposed to bring democracy to them and we wind up where they have less freedom and less voice in their own affairs than they ever had before. So freedom, though, is a popular word and everybody's for freedom, but how many people can define what freedom is? Uh, I, I venture to say uh, not many. Uh, most people, I have found, think that freedom is simply not being in jail. Anything outside of the jail, it means you're free. Well, that's not my definition of freedom. And um, so what is my definition of freedom? I'll cut to the chase on this, and we can come back uh, uh, in a moment and do some of the logic behind it and some of the historical precedents to defend that point of view. But to me, freedom is merely the ability to do anything you want to do provided that it does not take away or endanger the life, liberty, or property of another person. Now, that's a very specific definition, and I think if you follow this through and, and think of all of the ramifications of it, it is pretty inclusive. The only time that an individual, you or I, are ethically justified in using coercion against our neighbors, the only time we can use physical force against anybody is in the defense of our life, our liberty, and our property. Now, no one, would no one would say you were ethically wrong if you uh, used physical force. Even if you had to use lethal force against somebody to defend your life, you know, most people would say, well, you were justified. It was self-defense. But notice the word defense. That is the only basis, in my view at least, the only basis for the use of force against another person. It's not aggressive, not to make them do something, but to prevent them from doing something. It's not to make them you know, send their children to school or close their shops on Sunday or uh, you know, to, to hire certain people, certain people or to pay a minimum wage or anything. It's not, not the authority to make people do something but to prevent them from injuring or taking away your life, uh, your liberty or your property. Now, if one follows that, um, that rule, they basically are adhering to the concept of individualism because uh, we get to that a little bit later on in the creed of freedom. But individualism is based on the defensive nature of force. It's that we cannot establish a state that is designed to force uh, or coerce anyone to do anything except to prevent them from taking our life, liberty, and property. That was the way uh, the United States was designed in the beginning. That's the way the Constitution of the United States was drafted. And that's the basis of uh, the Bill of Rights. You know, it's the Bill of Rights, uh, for example, they don't grant powers to the government. They deny powers to the government. They're defensive. You know, Congress shall pass no law restricting the right of speech or freedom of assembly, the right to bear arms and so forth. Congress shall not. People shall not. The majority shall not. It's all negative. You shall not do this um, for, because otherwise you would be endangering the life, liberty, 
or property of individual citizens. It's a very simple concept, but you know it's not taught in schools. I had to kind of discover this. Uh, fortunately, uh, starting in the 1960s, I became interested in, in these issues. I really wasn't much of a student in school, I have to tell you. I, I, you know, I thought that the library was someplace you went because you, were, you did something wrong and you had to be punished. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got out of school and began to have an interest in some of these deeper issues that I found myself going to the library. My gosh, I going to the library and checking out a book without having to. And I became kind of hooked on the whole thing. Uh, but they don't teach this in school. And if they did, I don't think we'd have anywhere near the political and social problems we have today. Because in, in my view, and I'll sort of wrap this up to go on to something else. But in my view, almost all of the real troubling issues uh, facing our country today uh, are based on the violation of that fundamental principle that uh, the state should use coercion only negatively, only to prevent uh, citizens from uh, taking away the life, liberty, or property of its citizens. And anything beyond that is not, uh, not leg a legitimate function of the state. If we had followed that principle from the very beginning all the way to the present, I, I venture to say that 99% of the social and economic and political problems we now face just would not be there. So that's my definition of freedom. The non-aggression principle plays in heavily into into that definition, and, and I and I agree with you that it's just that it's simply just not taught in schools anywhere, not just in the United States anywhere. Um, I, and and I, I mean I grew up in in South Africa, and I had the similar experience than you. I was sent to the library to go do a project, and never <laughs> never for the fun books that I that I walked past that I that I actually wanted to read and was interested in picking up, but but other ones, but. Um, Looking at individualism and collectivism. Now, I think it's fascinating because there are just so many terms that we use to describe our political attitudes. You know, conservatives, liberals, libertarians, progressives, left-wingers, right-wingers, now the far-right and the alt-right and socialists, communists, Maoists, Trotskyites. We could go on and on, fascists, statists, Nazis, and then there's, I mean, every year there's almost a, a new term. But most people really fall into two groups of people that you talk about, uh, those that believe in individualism and those that believe in collectivism. What is your definition of individualism? I know you touched a little bit on it, and then also collectivism. Well, those, as you just said, are the only reasonable uh, words to use in discussing the debate in the Western world about uh, what political beliefs you have. As you so correctly stated, all these other terms, left, right, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, all these words are meaningless because once you peel off the labels and look underneath and start looking at the elements of the underlying ideology, they all fall into two groups, either collectivist on the one side or individualist on the other side. So really, we should abandon all those other words with all of the emotional garbage that is attached to them and just look at the underlying principles of collectivism versus individualism. And this is something that's not taught either. I more or less had to discover these principles by just reading a lot of books. And and uh, this was very uh, 
heavily discussed 80 years ago, 100 years ago, 120 years ago. The treatises on political philosophy use these words over and over again, collectivism, individualism, and they're almost not used at all anymore in the modern uh, vernacular. And we're trying to put them back into the uh, into the vocabulary because they are so, so important. And as I went through these things, I discovered by reading all the works of the great collectivists such as you know Karl Marx and Das Kapital and, and the Communist Manifesto and reading Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler and and Mao Zedong's little red book and all the writings of Stalin and uh, you know Vladimir Ilyich Lenin and all of the boys uh, I discovered that there were certain recurring themes that came up over and over again that were common to them all and I, I made a little list of them, and I found that basically there were eight common themes. There were more actually in total, but the eight uh, at the top of the list were probably the most important. And if we understood those eight, we would know all there is to know. What an absurd statement that is, but I think it's true. We would know all there is to know about the uh, the debate between uh, collectivism and individualism, which would cover just about all of the debate in the Western world. So what are those eight? I don't know how much time we have or how deeply you want to go into it, but the first one on the list has to do with what are the origins of human rights? This is, may not sound like it's very important. Who cares what the origins are, people would say, as long as you've got them, right? We all have human rights. Well, maybe yes and maybe no. The Individualist believes that rights come with the individual. They come with him. They're part of him. He's born with them. Some would say they are God-given. They're intrinsic. They're inalienable. Different words are used to describe this concept. The idea that rights are hardware. They come with the person. The collectivist says, no, no, no. Rights are software. They have to be added to the person, and they come from the state. The collectivist believes that the state is the, is the source of authority, and the state grants you your rights. And you find that in all of the major political documents of the collectivist nations of the world. The uh, It's in the Communist Manifesto. It's in the Soviet Constitution. You go to the United Nations and look at their draft covenant on human rights, and you find it there. Uh, the UN says that, and this is a direct quote, it says, uh, all rights belong to the state. They, they, their origin is from the state. And the purpose of the state is to grant rights to individuals. Well, that is collectivism. Now, the problem with that is that if the state has the power to grant rights, it also has the power to take them away. Right. And that is a condition that most people would not, you know, tolerate, and yet they do accept it when they, when they, uh, you know, get tricked into thinking that the state has the authority to grant rights. So that's a very important distinction there. It may not sound like much, but if you look at all of the totalitarian systems of the modern world in their constitutions, it's always very clear that the state is the source of rights. And you better be good boys and girls because if you misbehave and if the political leaders don't like you, they're going to take away your rights. 
You won't have the right to speak freely or to travel or uh, to practice a religion of your choice or any of the things that we like to think are our rights. So that's just one part. I think the second one perhaps is more dramatic because you can see it, you visualize it, and that is the supremacy of the individual is how I phrase it. Um, The collectivists believe that the group is more important than the individual and that the individual must be sacrificed if necessary for the greater good of the greater number. Now, that is a principle that I was taught in school. And at the time, it made a lot of sense to me. I thought, well, what's wrong with that? The greater good of the greater number. Isn't that democracy? And isn't democracy good? Of course, we want the greater good for the greater number. But the problem is that when you look at the group and you really analyze what it is, you come to the amazing conclusion that it doesn't exist. Amazing thought. The group does not even exist. It's an abstraction in the mind. It's a mathematical concept. You can't touch the group. You can't see a group. All you can touch or see are individuals. And we say that mathematically, you know, more than two or three or four individuals, that is the group. But the essence of it is really the individual. And the group itself is merely an abstraction, like the word forest. There's no such thing as forest. There are only trees. You, you can't cut down a forest, but you can't cut down individual trees. And so applying that to our social relationships, if we assume that the group, which does not even exist, has rights that are above the rights of individuals who do exist, well, you've made a terrible blunder because you've set in motion a concept that allows the, the demagogues, uh, the tyrants to move to the top and they say, we represent the group. We, we speak for the group. We are the party of the people. We are the leaders of the people and so forth, whatever language they want to use. And so they become absolute dictators claiming that they represent the group, which doesn't even exist. And so what it turns out to be is another dictatorship, but using word trickery and mental trickery to think that, well, uh, group is supreme and therefore we have to be content. We have to be willing to sacrifice an individual or a 10 individuals or thousands of individuals, if not even a million individuals, if it's for the greater good of society. And when you think about it, it's very, very bad principle because take a lynch mob, for example. That's a perfect, perfect example of democracy, pure democracy in action. There's only one dissenting vote <laughs> and he's, he's at the end of the rope. Right. So that makes you know you stop and think. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, that's not the majority. Maybe should not always rule, and that, of course, is it takes us to an understanding of the word uh, the republic, the classical definition of the word republic, as it was used back at the time that our constitution here in the United States was drafted. The word republic meant something. It doesn't anymore because look, we have the Republic of China. Uh, every tin horn dictatorship in the world is, calls itself a republic and we don't today we don't understand what the word republic used to mean well it used to mean that it was majority rule but with limits on the majority 
What limits? Well, those are the limits that were written into a constitution or a founding document. The, the parts that say you shall not, the parts that say Congress shall not pass a law you know, restricting the right of an individual to practice his religion, an individual to have freedom of speech, an individual to hold a weapon to defend himself. An individual of one is supreme against the whole nation, according to a republic, if we're talking about the defense of life, liberty, and property of that individual. And so that was the classic definition of a republic. It was simply meant a democracy with limits on the majority so that the majority, the passion and the greed of the majority could not deny the human rights of the individual, even an individual or group of one. A very important definition, again, an important concept, and it's at the heart of the difference between individualism and collectivism. Benjamin Franklin said a democracy is two wolves and a, and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. But in exactly. a republic, in a republic the, the sheep would have, have a gun. That's right. Well, yeah, that's true. The sheep would be defended by the the laws of a republic. Now, you know, if the wolves had the gun, <laughs> if we had one wolf and two sheep, if the wolf had the gun – the sheep are out of luck too, you know. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> so now we're back to the Second Amendment, you know. Thou shalt not take away the right of the individual to defend himself with a firearm. That's the Second Amendment. You know, not in those words, but it's it's a restriction that the state cannot take away the right of an individual to possess uh, a weapon to defend himself. And um, so we're back to the principle of the the non-aggressive principle. Right. Okay, I'm moving through this pretty fast, you know, but I, I just want to just drop a flavor of this as we go along. But these are concepts that are not taught in school, but you will find them in the classic uh, treatises on liberty and freedom that were popularly read 80 to 100 years ago. Right. Then, okay, we move to number three, which is uh, what I just call freedom of choice. Uh, an important distinction between a collectivist and an individualist is that individualists believe in freedom they really do they believe that you should have freedom to choose everything except to take away the life liberty and property of your citizen of your of your neighbor of other citizens freedom to do anything else but collectivists said no no freedom won't work freedom is okay and you could you should have your freedom to choose what color socks you want to put on in the morning but beyond that that's that has to be decided for you by wise people because otherwise you're apt to make a wrong choice and they're going to force you to do what is right for you the the, you know, the minority the elite the wise ones the educated ones the ones with political power will make these decisions for you and you must follow those decisions uh, or else you go to prison I think a classic example that always uh, bugs me is I think about seatbelt laws. Classic example. You know, the uh, collectivist says, you know, you ought to wear seatbelts. Uh, they're good for you. If you don't wear your seatbelt, you, uh, uh, you could kill yourself or get badly damaged. So that being the case, we're going to pass a law and make you, you dummy, make you wear your seatbelt whether you want to or not. Otherwise, we're going to throw you in prison. <laughs> 
uh, it reminds me of my friend. I have a good friend. Well, he's a very good friend, but we don't agree on this. Every time he sees something he doesn't like, like if somebody tosses a cigarette butt out the window of a car, I, I don't like it either, just as much as he doesn't like it. But he says, there ought to be a law. Oh, oh I cringe <laughs> when I hear that. Yeah, there ought to be a law. I mean, he's going to make a law on everything. you know. And most people would say, yeah, that's right. That this is... He shouldn't do that. Let's have a law. And they don't realize that law by law, nail by nail, they're nailing their own coffin, you know, because every day there are another thousand laws. And the next day, another thousand laws. By the time you reach the end of your lifetime, there's so many laws. You're like Gulliver, all tied down with those thin, thin, uh, uh, you know, strings, ropes. Uh, And you wonder, what happened to my freedom? And the fact is, they voted it away because they thought these people should be put in prison if they throw a cigarette butt out the window. Anyway, that's a very important thing. And uh, so the individualist believes, yeah, accidents are bad and seatbelts are good. You should wear your seatbelts. And I I believe that uh, I will try to convince you to do so. I will... I will show you by good example that I wear my seatbelt. I might even contribute some money to a campaign to put on a television series to demonstrate the value of seatbelts. But I'm not going to throw you in prison because you don't do it, mainly because I don't believe that I have the power to do to force you to do something, uh, you know, so forth. So there is a very important distinction between individualists and collectivists. Uh, I was at a at a conference uh, in Florida a couple of years ago, and I came out, and I, I was stunned. I looked at the parking lot area, and I saw this sign in front of a um, handicapped parking area, and it says, handicapped parking only. And then the next line, uh, violators will be fined a minimum of $500 or something like that. I thought, oh, my gosh. We're going to pass a law to make sure that people don't park in a parking area that is reserved for handicapped people. Of course, it's nice that you do that, but you're going to throw people in prison for it? So anyway, I took, I took a picture of the sign, and I went, came back home, and I used a photo paint, or that's the Corel version of photo, uh, Photoshop, and I wiped out the $500 fine part, and I put words in that said thank you very much or something just thank you and uh, i put the two sides side by side and i said which uh, which city would you rather live in the one with this sign or the one with that other sign and of course that is you know another way of looking at it if we want freedom if we don't want to be coerced every time we turn around we better be willing to grant freedom to others even grant them to make a poor choice as long as it doesn't threaten my life liberty or property i think people should be free to make mistakes even to do things i don't like even you know aside from hurting my life liberty and property i don't think i should have any power over them that's the essence of freedom you got to if you want to be free you have to allow others to be free as well well now we come to number 4 which is property rights now this is really a area where you can get into heated discussions uh, because a lot of people well most people in school were like myself i was taught that property rights uh, used to be very important in the pioneer 
days because, uh, well, this it was a very primitive society and people needed property. And, and anyway, there was so much of it to go around. It didn't make any difference if you own property. But not anymore, we were told. If anybody that owns property today, they're denying um, somebody else from having property. And besides, you can't own property. Uh, you can't take it with you when you die. And therefore, property should not be held by individuals it should be held collectively there's that word again the collective the group should own the property and and administer it on behalf of the collective or the group let everybody share equally but no private ownership well when you follow that all the way down to the bottom of the rabbit hole you find out it's a very bad move because property rights are human rights I've read over and over again many treatises where some professor usually says that we must not allow property rights to override human rights. And I want to say, shout at the printed page and say, wait a minute, professor, back up a little bit. Property rights are human rights. I can assure you that no other animal has property rights, even though they have the the territorial instinct. All animals want to, you know, dominate a particular territory. It just—it's part of the mating ritual, actually. It's, it's come—it comes as part of our instinct. It's certainly strong in humans, but beyond the instinct side of it, if you don't own property, real estate, have the right to own it. You don't have to own it, but if you don't have the right to own real estate or own a car, own your house, own your clothes, own own your your food that you have in your pantry it's yours not somebody else's you can give it to others if you want to but it's yours for right now if you don't have the right to own property you cannot survive without assistance from someone else and if no one else is allowed to own property except the state that means you cannot survive without permission of the state and that's where this always goes if you can't have property you are dependent for everything you do on political decisions of some ruling party, and you are now a serf. It's as simple as that. And there are other aspects to it, too, and that is that the people who own property always take care of their property much more than those who don't own it. You, you take a look at, at the property that's owned by I, – I saw this up in Oregon a few years ago where there are a lot of trees you know, in Oregon, and they were always talking about preserve the forests. And every time I saw some hillside or some mountainside that was stripped bare, I inquired and I found out it was uh, Forest Service land. Not owned by anybody, but by the state. They had stripped it down to the ground, caused erosion. It was ugly. It was that way for years. But when I saw the property that was owned by logging companies, private firms, private individuals – And when they logged off an area, they didn't do that kind of strip logging. They left trees here and there. They left planter trees. And um, they didn't cut deeply into the road, into the hillside with making roads and that kind of thing. They airlifted the logs out so they could uh, maintain the soil. They did a lot of things to preserve the ecology of the land because it was their land. And here we had the bureaucrats, on the other hand, talking about environmentalism and uh, preserving forests, but they didn't do it because it wasn't their land. All they cared about was getting their paycheck and uh, making some kind of a quota uh, and looking good on paper. If you go down the street and you see a lot of nice little houses with their grass cut, the trees are trimmed and the bushes are nice and trimmed, and the house is painted, and then you see 
right in the middle of that, there's a house that's unpainted, broken door, broken porch, weeds in the front yard. Guess which one is a rental? You know? Right. It's, it's that simple. So property rights are important at many levels. And it's one of the differences between individualism and collectivism is that individuals, individualists believe that property rights are important and collectivists say no, they're not important to the individual. They should be owned by the collective. So we move up to number five. Well, this is one that is very close to my uh, heart. It's money without coercion. As you know, I've written a book on the Federal Reserve System called The Creature from Jekyll Island. And uh, I really got deeply into the monetary and banking system when I did the research on that. And I came out with a very, very strong preference for gold or silver or something else of tangible value backing a, a money supply. I think it's absolutely essential for us to be protected against the uh, confiscation of our wealth through this process called inflation. If we have money that's not backed by something that takes human nature to produce, like gold or silver or something else, then the money supply will grow exponentially because it's so easy to make. In fact, you can just make it out of nothing, and that's what the banks do. So when the, when the money supply expands faster than the supply of goods and services, then the value of each purchasing unit of that money goes down, 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 until finally it's worthless, and that's what we call inflation. And it's a process by which our wealth is completely stolen from us by the banks and by the governments. So I think that all money should have something of intrinsic value backing it, which limits its supply because it takes effort to produce it. Now, uh, that's what I believe, but I also believe in freedom of choice, if you remember. So I am not right. the kind of a person that says that I'm going to pass a law and make everybody use the kind of money that I think is valuable or more valuable. So how do you, uh, you, know, how do you reconcile those two points of view? And it's very simple. You just give people freedom of choice to use any money they wish. Now, if the particular money of the nation in which they live is backed by gold or silver, I can assure you most people are going to want to use it. Now, if it's just fiat money and the banks make it out of nothing and it's losing value every day, some people will still use it as long as they can turn it over and spend it fairly quickly before it loses too much value. But others who are wanting to save money for the long term, let's say for their retirement, looking ahead and they're saying, golly, if I save this money – uh, it's going to be worthless by the time I retire. So they will look for something else. Maybe they'll go to some other currency from some other country. Or maybe they'll even go to a privately issued currency. And that happens a lot in history. Well, that is why countries that create fiat money, which is worthless money in terms of their intrinsic value, they all, pa they all pass laws uh, called legal tender laws. And when you analyze what that means, that simply means that you no longer have the freedom to use any money except the one that the nation decrees is your money. You can't use any other money. It's illegal. There again, they'll throw you in jail if you don't use their worthless money. So the solution, therefore, is to get rid of all legal tender laws and allow people the freedom to use whichever money they wish. 
under those conditions, uh, you're not decreeing which one they should use. They can use any one they wish. But under those conditions, trial and error and exact see ex not example but historical uh, record will show which money is more valuable than the other, and it won't take long before everybody is using pretty much the same currency because it has proven itself to be the most reliable. So you don't have to decree which money people will use. They will use the best one for them. And I'm confident that after a little while, maybe uh, 10 years or so, everybody will go back to using money that's backed by gold and silver. But if not, well, that's their choice. So again, the principle is freedom of choice as applied to money. And that is the fifth difference between collectivism and individualism is that collectivists believe that you should not have choice in this. You must use the state's money. And that's a good reason because that's how the state uh, bribes everybody into, into uh, subjection. You know, that's how they pay for all the welfare. It's how they keep everybody on the dole so that they vote the way they think they have to vote in order to keep the money coming from the government. And they couldn't do that if they couldn't create money out of nothing. Uh, if they had to raise it in the form of taxes, nobody would pay the taxes. It would be too much. But if they raise it from inflation, there's no limit. They can raise all of it. They, they can take away everything you have in the way of purchasing power through inflation, and you have no control over it. So individualists believe in money without coercion, freedom to choose money, and the collectivists believe in money that you must use that is issued by the state. And it's very important also to point out that Money was not a creation of government. That's a creation from the free market. People was a medium of exchange since uh, for a very, very long time, on ages ago. Um, it's a way to exchange value between people of of their production, of their goods and services, and uh, not from the state at all. And the other point that I also want to add is you'd mentioned the social welfare state depends on this fiat money and the creation of money, and it also supports the warfare state. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, if people knew what they were paying for wars, there would be a tax rebellion on their hands. But they don't know. All they know is that their cost of bread keeps going up. And they think, goodness, my goodness gracious, what, what, why is this bread going up? They don't realize that that is a hidden tax for the wars we're fighting and for the welfare and for all the graft and the, and the payola, you know, and the crony socialism that they've got out there. They're paying for it through a tax, a hidden tax called inflation. Right. Equality under law is the sixth point I discovered. You know, everybody talks about equality under law. Everybody's for equality under law. That's what they say. But when you look at what they vote for in Congress or what they, the people they vote for, if you're a voter, nobody really believes in that because I'm going to guess that over 90% of the laws on the books in America and around the world are laws which are deliberately designed to apply unequally between one class of citizens or one group to another one. Take the income tax, for example. Does everybody pay the same income tax? Of course not. There are thousands and thousands of pages of rules and regulations in the tax books, all of which are designed to give one group an advantage over another group through deductions, you know, special exemptions, rebates, all of this kind of stuff so that you wind up taking advantage of everyone else. That's how these laws get written. Uh, 
you know, lobbyists and people of great influence will go to their congressman and say, look, I'm going to give you a nice contribution for your campaign if you just would consider putting this feature into the into the tax law. Why? Because it would help me uh, against my competition. It'll make money for me. That's why. And so another law or another rule gets put into the tax laws. And we wonder what happened. Well, that's all because the, the tax laws are designed to apply inequally uh, to various groups. And you look everywhere else. We've got laws that, that give people advantages in school. We have to hire some people over others based on their ethnicity or race or a gender or something, you know, t- to treat them differently than everybody else. Ninety percent, I'm sure more than 90 percent of our laws are deliberately written to be unequal. And yet everybody goes around saying, yeah, I believe in equality under law. They do not. Individualists do. We do honestly believe in equality under law, and but collectivists use the law to create advantage from one group over another, and it's not equal at all. And that's where the when you hear someone say, says fair share, oh boy, be careful then. You're dealing with a particular person, a collectivist in this case, because that's what we keep hearing, and that's the language out there right now is fair share, fair share. Yeah, that means you pay more than I do. Exactly. <laughs> That's what that means. Exactly. <laughs> now, it might seem in your mind that it is fair, you know? It might seem that it is fair that some people would pay more than others, but that is not equality under law. And I would rather stick with equality, which everybody understands. It's clear. But what fair means differs a lot from one person to the other. So if you're looking for law, you better have something that is clearly understood. Otherwise, someone else will interpret what the words mean, and I can assure you it won't be for your benefit. Right. A very relative term, fair. Yes, Yes. (laughs) definitely. Uh, Yeah, what is fair would probably be best for your relatives. In that sense, it would be a relative term. (laughs) Right. But now here's another one we just added uh, about a year ago, and I think this is the last one. I've always had it in my notes, but I didn't think it was so important until this recent election. And I call it the great leader. And I think... In this case, I would be well advised just simply to read it. It's not very long, and it will probably allow me to cover this ground faster and probably um, more uh, accurately than if I just talked about it. So here it is, number seven. It's our creed of freedom. I believe that leadership is a natural outgrowth of human dynamics and is essential for social order and large-scale tasks. However… There are two types of leadership. One is based on coercion and decree found in military organizations and totalitarian political systems. The other is based on persuasion and good example found in voluntary organizations and free political systems. We must evaluate leaders not only on their stated goals, but on which type of leadership they offer. Their goals may be admirable, But how they pursue those goals may be tyranny. All modern totalitarian systems have a great leader who claims to represent the best interests of the people, but who is, in reality, merely a dictator. Truly great political leaders do not follow that path. Okay, that's it. Yeah, and we have to be careful because, you know, modern politics is 
is based on not who you like to vote for. You don't vote for – most people don't vote for anybody anymore. They vote against somebody. I haven't heard in years. I haven't heard too many people say I'm voting for such and such because I think he's the best man. Almost always I hear, well, I don't like any of them, but I'm voting for this one because he's the lesser of two evils or she is the lesser of two evils. It's a horrible state of affairs because they're all looking for the man on the white horse. They all want somebody to say what is right and actually deliver. That's impossible in politics in the modern world. You know, politicians, they don't, uh, they don't really tell you what they believe. In fact, they don't believe anything except that they have to win the election. Uh, basically, that's what they believe in. And all of them, I don't care who they are, all of them spend a lot of money conducting polls and sampling public opinion to determine what it is the public wants to hear. And then they hire speechwriters. Some of them do. Some of them, like, I don't think Donald Trump, if he hired a speechwriter, he probably, you know, the speechwriter <laughs> didn't uh, didn't earn his pay because Trump never it. But anyway, right. uh, most of, I'll go back to the word most. Most of them uh, hire speechwriters to, to write out speeches that repeat the things that the public wants to hear. Now, there is absolutely no connection in most cases, between those speeches and what the, the politician actually believes, if anything, or certainly no connection to what he's going to do once he's put into office. Then it's a whole different game. Now, now there's another contest to see who you have to please. And uh, so it's a very discouraging uh, game if you understand it. So under these conditions, it's very dangerous to find the man that stands up and says, I am the great leader. I am the one that's going to lead the nation back to where or to greatness or to make a change. Uh, Mr. Obama said, you know, change. Well, we got we didn't get any change. Um, we just same old policies. Um, just only thing that changed was the name of the president. Now, Mr. Trump is saying, make America great again. Don't know what that means, but it sounds good. But it's clear that he wants to be the great leader. And I'm not saying anything against Donald Trump now. As a matter of fact, you know, if I had to choose between the two, if I'm going to vote for the lesser of two evils, it would be you-know-who. <laughs> but uh, I'm just p pointing out that this principle of the great leader is something we have to be very aware of. We do not want to make our selection on the basis that so-and-so is a great leader. We want to do it on the basis that so-and-so is a person who honors the individual and that the individuals are the leaders and not the group. And if history has taught us anything, be careful on a, on a man with a white horse Lord, <laughs> when, yes. he, when he rides in to come and rescue the day. Now, these are extremely, extremely powerful principles, and this is part of the creed of, uh, of freedom for – uh, your organization that I just wanted you to talk a little bit about as well, the Freedom Force International. You guys do, are doing fantastic work over there. And just share a little bit with my listeners what the organization is about. Thank you for that. Um, the organization is designed, in fact, it was formed back in 2002. And it just is really ramping up right now. It's taken all this time to get to get organized, to figure out you know how we should go about this and so forth. But it's really ramping up now. But in a nutshell, it's an organization that is international in scope. We have members now in, I think it's 80-some countries. 
And the whole purpose of the organization is to promote the concepts that we've been talking about in the creative freedom. Not only to promote them, but to do what we can to make them the guiding principles of all political systems in the future. We're not expecting this to happen by the next election or anything like that. We see it as a uh, long-term process, probably going to take a couple of generations. But we're already moving. We can see that the boat has left the dock and we're moving. And we can see the, you know, the buildings begin to slowly move past as the boat moves out to sea. Uh, so we're, we have two goals in mind. One is to, uh, to promote the appreciation of the principles in the creed of freedom because we think it's important that people know what they're for. It's not enough just to know what you're against. We started this discussion out earlier by saying most people think that freedom is merely not being in jail. And so they'll vote for anybody that says, yeah, vote for me. I'm the great leader. Uh, I'm the man on the white horse. We hate the other guy. And so anybody's got to be better than that. So vote for me. And so what happens? They turn out to be just as bad, if not worse, than the previous one. Why? Because people didn't know what they wanted. They knew what they didn't want, but they didn't know what they wanted. They didn't know what was essential for freedom. So that's the first thing that Freedom Force is attempting to do is to create an awareness of what is the the basis of freedom, what is required for freedom to exist. And we're all on that uh, same page. And then the next step is to uh, pro, a program or strategy to to implement that into the political and social structure of of our respective countries. It's not enough just to know about these things and and to speak about them, but we have to go through certain steps to make sure that people who hold this view become influential in the political and uh, educational and media institutions of the nation, uh, because that's where the power is. And if we, if we don't have that influence, then nothing is going to change. So we like to think of ourselves as change agents. We want to do more than just talk about these things and, and uh, you know, know a little bit of history and so forth. We certainly don't want to just, just wring our hands and complain about what's going on in the world. We actually want to bring about change. So in a nutshell, that is what Freedom Force is all about, is to have a creed, to know what we believe in, and then a strategy to bring about change so that we can reverse the trend, the disastrous trend that we see all about us today. It's so important, too, because to share ideas and openly discuss it and put it out there in the the arena outside there, good ideas will prevail. And again, it's all about freedom of choice, but I think that there's not a lot of people that really sit back and think about these things. So you guys are doing fantastic work just educating and showing there, there are these two prevailing co- concepts and approaches and ideas because I think deep down – Every single person, regardless of where they are in the world, they want to create an environment or live an environment, um, and they want to take care of their family. They want to take care of their loved ones, and they want themselves and their family to uh, live life to the fullest and live to their full potential and become the best version of themselves. How they do it, that's where the water gets a little bit muddy, and that's where the the education and the information really comes into play. And just putting this these ideas out there is already powerful because ideas are bulletproof, and just sharing these ideas again good ideas will prevail 
over bad ones. That's why if you look through history, usually the bad ideas have to be enforced by some kind of force and laws. You're quite right. And truth does not need force uh, to um, promote it, but lies do. And all we have to sell here at Freedom Force is the truth. All we have are ideas. It's up to you to decide whether it's truth or not. But I think it's self-evident once you really dig into the root of it. But, uh, yeah, there are people out there, the collectivists, who believe that these ideas should be suppressed by law. And they're working on that right now. That's why they want to control the Internet. They're going to try and convince us that they want control over the Internet in order to stop terrorism or pornography or uh, crime or or something, drugs in the street. Always some good excuse. Yeah, please uh, give us authority to protect you against these bad things. But really what they're worried about is this freedom of expression. They do not want a free exchange of ideas like this, and that's why they're seeking for control of the Internet. So you're quite right. Uh, we have an uphill battle. So – Folks, if you want to get into this battle, the time is now. It's not going to get any easier as it goes along. So please come and take a look at our program, and you'll find us at freedomforceinternational.org. It's a lot to read there. There is so much valuable information on there. The weekly newsletter that you put out, too, is just filled with, with content and packed with valuable information that really affects us daily. So, and I know that you do, uh, you do a lot of research because, it, I mean, I, it's, I look forward to those weekly newsletters, Mr. Griffin. They're just uh, so well-researched, whether it's health, whether it's what's going on in the e economy and the markets. Uh, Mr. Griffin, thank you so much for coming on the show and just uh, sharing these ideas and discussing these with us. Um, it's been fantastic having you on again, and uh, thank you so much for sharing such valuable information with my listeners. Well, thank you very much, MC. It's my pleasure, and let's do it again sometime. Hi, this is MC Lobsher, the host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast. As you may know, I'm also the president and chief wealth strategist of Valhalla Wealth Financial. We help individuals, families, small businesses, entrepreneurs, and professionals build their wealth outside of Wall Street and help investors maximize the use of every dollar in their personal economy and boost their investment gains. We do this by combining their capital and investments with the financial vehicle of the wealthy according to the infinite banking concept. If you are interested in learning more, you can email me at info at cashflowninja.com and I will send you a copy of Nelson Nash's book, Becoming Your Own Banker. Thank you for joining my guest, Mr. G. Edward Griffin and myself on the Cashflow Ninja podcast today. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here at the Cashflow Ninja, please subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends, and your network. I really have been humbled by your support and feedback, and I love getting those daily emails from you guys. If there's any way that I can provide more value to you and serve you better, please reach out to me at info at cashflowninja.com. And don't forget to take advantage from the offers from our partners that aims to empower you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Our healthy partner on it provides supplements, nutrient-dense, and earth-grown foods and fitness equipment to help you achieve your next level of well-being and total human optimization. Our listeners can get a 10% discount with coupon code GETONIT at CashflowNinjaHealth.com. 
Com. Our wealthy partner, Fundrise, gives everyone the opportunity to invest directly in high-quality real estate without the middleman. Fundrise makes the process of investing in the highest-quality commercial real estate from around the country simple, efficient, and transparent. You can get started with as little as $1,000 and do not have to be an accredited investor to participate in some of their offerings. You can check them out at CashflowNinjaWealth.com. And our wise partner, Audible, offers a free audiobook download when you try Audible for 30 days. You can download your free audiobook at CashflowNinjaBook.com. That's our show for today, everyone. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. You have been listening to the Cashflow Ninja with your host, MC Laubscher, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, CashflowNinja.com. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objective, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.